As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Welcome, everybody, to the Total Soccer Show. My name is Taylor Rockwell, and on today's episode, we've got an Americans in action version of the weekend review. We're still trying out new names, <laughs> even if it wasn't a particularly strong weekend for Americans abroad. Joining me to break down the weekend that was is a gentleman who always scores on his debut in the Scottish Premier League. It's Joe Lowry. Hi, Joe. Absolutely. I, it is actually me, Cameron yep. Carter Vickers. I have just <laughs> been using a fake accent this entire time, and no one noticed. Ha ha. I like your you're wearing your Arrested Development esque uh, muscle suit then when you suit up as Cameron Carter Vickers. No disrespect to Joe, but I've met Joe in person. Cameron Carter Vickers has a few pounds on, him. just a few, just a few, Joe. Yeah, no, I've got some eating to do if I'm going to get to CCV's <laughs> shape and mass. I, I've got some ground to cover. I don't know if he has height on you. That might be worth checking. That is a consistently surprising thing about professional soccer players is they that they are not. Seven feet tall, the way football players, basketball players tend to be. Soccer players, a little bit more accessible when it comes to height, less so when they have 0% body fat and yeah. are fitter than I will ever be in my life. Yeah, I think regardless of what CCV's height is, I'm, I'm pretty yeah. sure he's taller than me. I'm about 5'10". I'm guessing he's got a few inches on me at I the guess. very least. But he definitely fits in the Graham Ruthven power cube category. <laughs> I know that's usually reserved for Shakiri. Yeah. But uh, there are a number of different players that could fit into that category. CCV yeah. has got to be towards the top of that list. I would say so. We are going to be talking <laughs> okay. about Cameron Carter-Vickers and several other Americans who were in action this weekend, uh, as well as a few who were not. First, I, I wanted to start with the story that has been all over the Twitter. Uh, U.S. national team tickets, Joe, they are expensive. Yes, they are. They are the expense. That was a good lead, Taylor. Good lead, good <laughs> nut graph. I think I think you just got right to the heart of the issue. So there's been tweets right. surfacing about people trying to go in and purchase tickets for the U.S. men's national team's next couple of qualifying mm-hmm. windows, looking for a game against Mexico or looking for a game against Costa Rica or whatever the situation is. These games that are being played here in the United States, the tickets are expensive. Like they have the, the big picture that's been going around is I think it has 18 different tiers and all of the tiers 
are $100 or more as far as I can recall. So, yeah, there's been there's been some heat on the Twitter stage. <laughs> yes, yes there has. Those I think specifically those prices and those ranges, those levels, the 17 or 18 levels uh would be for the USA Mexico game and and that is an argument that I've seen been made that basically because it's USA Mexico, because World Cup qualifying at home is this rare event, and because since we're going to automatically qualify for 2026, we won't have it uh, the next round, so it's the last one of these for a good eight years. You raise prices accordingly. That is one argument. The other argument, or a couple other arguments, would be that this is something U.S. soccer has done historically. They raise prices on on events like these, especially for ones that are being put into smaller venues, because the annual reports look better when it comes to the average price per ticket, and then like the percentage crowd that fills the stadium. You could do some creative accounting, some creative mathematics to come up with very positive numbers, which is the thing we've seen U.S. soccer do before. Four, but they are incredibly expensive. Uh, we can do a little bit of a breakdown because uh, Grant Wall tweeted U.S. Soccer's response. They have obviously seen people being upset. Uh, a few explanations coming from U.S. Soccer. Uh, only the premium, premium seating areas, club seating or seats that include food and beverage as part of a package are above $200. Premium seating areas represent only 18% of overall stadium capacity. All general seating is below $200. The prices are comparable to a typical in-demand NFL regular season game or a major stadium concert. USA Mexico home uh, World Cup qualifier is U.S. soccer's premier ticket once every four years, and it won't happen again for at least uh, eight years, as we said. And as a nonprofit, the vast majority of the money the Federation earns goes back into growing the game, developing players, funding coaching, referee programming, providing grassroots with funds for programs, etc. So those would be some of their explanations for why things are so expensive. I think if things were maybe slightly better from a qualifying perspective, but then also just from a general sentiment around U.S. soccer perspective, I think there would be less of a backlash. But this, anytime U.S. soccer comes across as, as seeming tone deaf or seeming like they are not in touch with the fan base, there's always going to be a pretty sizable backlash. And when you are asking for the prices they're asking for, that backlash is uh, all the more understandable, in my opinion. It is understandable, and it's it's hard because it's it's important here to understand what the Federation – at least in my view, it's important to understand what the Federation is mm-hmm. trying to do here. The money – like you said, Taylor, the money that they make from these games should go back into the Federation, and I don't know how that money gets distributed. But you can empathize with U.S. soccer wanting to capitalize on this event and then to turn that money into a way to grow the game in the United States. That's objectively a good thing, at least the growing the game part. It is unfortunate, however – that that has to come at the expense of folks that want to go to this game. But the money the money has to come from somewhere, right? This isn't an easy solution. This isn't, oh, we can charge five bucks a ticket and and continue to operate in the same way. No, it is it is an incredibly important event in terms of the World Cup qualifying cycle and soccer in the United States. So there are there this is a nuanced thing, right? You can understand exactly. where yeah. where US soccer is coming from and you can understand where people who maybe want to go to this game but can't afford the tickets or want to go to the game but don't think it's the right thing to do to go to the game given what US soccer is charging, you can also empathize with where they stand. So, I don't know. I feel like on this and and many th- many other things that we talk about, I find myself somewhere in the middle. Which is a good place to be, I think, because you're right that there's a lot of nuance here and I think this is one of those stories that gets traction on Twitter, is going to get a ton of attention and gets a lot of very angry responses, does not get as much detailed, nuanced breakdown that it might uh, deserve. Uh, Scuffed has been tweeting about it. Charlie Bohm has tweeted about it. So has Grant Wall. Uh, They're good people to follow and read a bit more about this situation. But 
it it does seem, and multiple people have pointed this out, that like when we come to that nuance, there it's a lottery system. American Outlaws members are getting discounted rates. Uh, Cincinnati season ticket holders are getting discount rates. If you're a U.S. Soccer Insider, there's other rates, and so I think on the surface it looks worse than it probably is. That said, I mean, we're still coming at this from a fairly privileged perspective, would be my guess, because even if it is $100 a ticket, that's still pricing out a lot of the fan base. Uh, And so, like, I I do, again, get the idea of why you would want it to be put in a bigger stadium with with cheaper tickets available. I think the argument there has always been that the more tickets that are available for World Cup qualifying against CONCACAF opposition, especially Mexico, the more likely you are to get El Tri fans buying those tickets. And that's not just because, oh, they're going to buy cheaper tickets. I think El Tri fans have proven themselves more than capable of buying expensive tickets, too. I think it's just that you te- you don't get that same level of dedication to the U.S. national team when it comes to turning out for games the way you do for El Tri uh, fans in the U.S. And that's, I would argue, because those fans are here in the United States. They don't get to see their national team as often. So when it becomes this event, when there is this one-off moment where you get to see them, especially in a, in a game like World Cup qualifying, you're going to do everything, everything you can to make it happen. So I do think what U.S. soccer is doing are setting up a lot of obstacles and barriers to ensure that they end up getting a at least like 51, 49% home crowd. I'm, I'm guessing they're hoping for more than that. But what they don't want it to be is a massive stadium sold out for cheaper tickets that then becomes 80% L tree fans. That would be my guess on uh, the other aspect of why these tickets cost what they cost. No, I think there's logic behind that. And the other thing, I think we've mentioned it already, is this is a purposeful financial choice from yeah. U.S. soccer mm-hmm. to raise the ticket prices and, and constrict the size of the venue. And you can see it in – I saw a tweet from Brian Strauss floating around on Twitter. And you can see it in some of the, the slides that U.S. soccer's presented at their annual reports. They're making more money off of these games, which goes back to what I was saying earlier about them putting that back into soccer here in the U.S. And it's not a seamless system. It's not a foolproof system. But that's another huge reason. And in addition, I think, Taylor, to what you're talking about with trying to somewhat manipulate who's going to be in yeah. attendance, it's also just a solid economic way to boost the amount of revenue that they're taking in on a yearly basis or on a you know four-year basis. So I don't know. I just keep coming back to I want the U.S. to actually perform well in these games. And if that comes with people in the stands at all, um, that's even better. But uh, I think I think we'd be talking about this a lot less like we led with if the U.S. had actually uh, looked a little bit better in the first three World Cup qualifiers. Yeah, because like fundamentally, U.S. soccer is going to do what they're going to do, and and we can get angry about it. I do think prices should be cheaper and more reasonable, and I think there should be family packages and ways that you can get young kids there so they get sort of into it from an early age. But I also think when it comes to U.S. soccer, you kind of have to pick your battles. And this feels very much like one of those things, uh, a thing we experienced for like the last four years or so of just another thing that will make you sort of scream into the void, but not like like uh, allow for easy action to be taken short of not buying tickets because then you're protesting with your wallet, but other people still will. And so I think uh, the the sort of response has been logical and useful in that it helps keep U.S. soccer on their toes. But I also, I think, Joe, go along with you that I'm not going to get super bent out of shape about it, super furious about it, because I think when it comes down to it, being really, really angry about what U.S. soccer is going to charge for tickets like I'm not going to be able to change that. And it's just a level of negative energy. I don't really want to expend right now. I'd rather focus that on like the on-field performance where I can then be uh, critical and confused and uh, stay up late at night trying to figure out the team. 
And and maybe I should have led with this to close out my thoughts on this whole ticket thing. Uh, I'm not an economist, and I, yeah. my background is not in economics or in finances. So I am completely willing and ready to be just steamrolled with yeah. people who know way more than I do and have logical explanations for why this is either a good thing or a bad thing. I don't know if that's going to happen, right? This seems like it is a nuanced thing where there is no clear answer necessarily. It's one of those situations like almost everything in life where there are different people with different perspectives coming down on different sides of this. But if there are people out there that know more and are screaming into their yeah. in, into their own personal void as they listen to this podcast – reach out. I'd love to learn more about this particular issue. And I, I'm definitely going to be the first to say that I'm not an expert on this. And I, I want to see people in the stands who can afford tickets. And I want to see that diverse fan base come out and support the U.S. men's national team. That's that's where I stand. And I definitely don't have that expert perspective. Yeah, I would agree with that. I would say if you are going to reach out, maybe don't begin it with like, hey, idiots or hey, dummies <laughs> or like, you guys don't know anything. That's probably not going to make me keep reading. And I would especially like to uh, hear from people who understand the secondary ticket market. That's an issue that I've seen raised uh, a number of times regarding these prices and how it's meant to, I think, like limit the sale on the secondary market. But I still don't get how like charging more so that like they then will maybe mark them up slightly less. But still, if you're charging $50 and then they're being marked up 100% to a $100 ticket versus if you're charging $150 for a ticket and it's being marked up 20%, you're still paying more. So I'm sure I am misunderstanding things there. Uh, I do not have the math background or the accounting background uh, similar to you, Joe. So yes, if people have strong thoughts one way or the other, strong explanations or uh, can help us parse some of the nuance, I would appreciate it. But for now, Joe, let's move away from tickets. Let's, Let's talk actual American players, shall we? Oh, yeah. Now, here's the thing. Uh, (laughs) Normally, we've got just so many players to choose from. There's so many Americans playing abroad, and that was still the case this weekend. But it was a strange weekend for Americans, especially in Europe. We did not have Gio Reyna. We did not have Christian Pulisic or Tyler Adams or Brendan Aronson, uh, all of them not playing. Josh Sargent not involved for Norwich. Same for Matthew Hoppe for Mallorca, though he was on the bench. So there's that. Reggie Cannon not in the team and has not been in the team for Boavista, who are very good in the Portuguese league. But without Reggie Cannon, uh, that does not make me as happy. Tim Weah is still recovering from a thigh injury. John Brooks was a second-half substitute for Wolfsburg. Sergio Dest also a second have sub for Barcelona and Yunus Musa finally returned to action came on in the 87th minute of a 4 to 1 win for Valencia who are currently second in La Liga but none of those feel like like enough minutes enough of us for us to then kind of go back and look at in detail except for maybe Reggie Cannon only to say that uh, I am very concerned about the fact that Reggie Cannon is not playing at all for Boavista yeah I don't I really wonder what's going on there because Boavista have had a mess of issues financially. Reggie Cannon was close to making a move before the transfer deadline happened. There's a whole number of things happening there behind the scenes that we're not privy to. This one might not be all that complicated of a situation. This could be recovering from a slight injury or just working his way into the lineup after a summer of of being off with the U.S. Men's National Team to at least end the summer. But yeah, the whole whole Reggie Cannon Boavista (laughs) thing is is a little bit wild. Uh, I'm going to go for a more negative term. I'm going to say it's bad. I'm going to say it's not a good situation because uh, he did seem to be agitating for a move as the transfer window wound to a close. That move did not happen. 
And now he's not playing, and it doesn't seem like there's much motivation for him to do so. His replacement has been doing just fine. And I have some concerns that this is Reggie Cannon maybe having burned a bridge or maybe having upset some people, and now he's got to work his way back into the team if he can or at least show that he belongs in training and then go from there if he's given that opportunity. But I think Reggie Cannon is one where if we had more Portuguese speakers, more people dedicated to covering that league from an American perspective, we'd probably get more insight because I have a feeling that there's other things going on away from the pitch, but we won't know that for sure for some time would be my guess, but we will continue to monitor it. But Joe, with those names not involved or not involved enough for us to discuss them in much more detail, who who do you want to talk about? Who should we start with this week? I want to talk about Chris Richards, Taylor. All right. It is finally Chris Richards' time again. He moved on loan back to Hoffenheim, where he spent most of the second half of last season. He moved from Bayern to Hoffenheim on August 31st, I believe, so right up at the deadline. And this was his first start of the season. He played all of two minutes for Bayern Munich before making that move this year. I I love the move. I'm glad he's back. He started and played the whole game in Hoffenheim's 2-0 loss to Mainz on Saturday. The result wasn't good for Hoffenheim. But the fact that Chris Richards is back and actually in a spot where he can play, that makes me so happy, Taylor. I think he can be a difference maker for the U.S. sooner rather than later. We've been saying that for months now, dating back to 20, mm-hmm. uh, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know when we started saying that, but we've oh, been wow. saying it for a while, certainly last season. I am pumped for this move. Taylor, are you somewhere close to my stratosphere of excitement on this one? I was. I was very nervous for a moment when you said he played all of two minutes. And that did <laughs> okay. not seem like what you wanted from a player making their uh, return debut. But when it became when it became two minutes for Bayern Munich, that made more sense. Yeah, I'm really excited for him to be uh, getting minutes again and playing regularly. I would have preferred they win this game. I'm now in ninth place in the table. Joe, from what you saw, how much of the goals were uh, the responsibility of Chris Richards? Or was he uh, uninvolved in a good way? Uh, he was not wholly uninvolved, but I have down in my notes, not really at fault for either one of Mainz's goals. Maybe a bit too deep on the first one, and he needed to be about a half step higher to hold that offside line. But I mean, it's really close, and I don't think the responsibility is wholly on him in that situation. The second goal, he's sort of near the action, but I don't think it's his responsibility to be stopping the ball as Mainz get it towards the right side of the box, Hoffenheim's left. So I'm I'm willing to uh, not point any real fingers at Chris Richards for the goals. I will, though, Taylor, talk about what he did well in this game, because I think he did a few things really, really well. He started as the left center back in a back four, so he's next to the right center back with the two fullbacks outside of him, and that's the spot he played last year for Hoffenheim as well under Honus, their manager, who he worked with at uh, Bayern 2 previously. So he has this relationship with the manager. He's in a similar role to what he played last year, and he looked comfortable. He wasn't flawless. He loves to step really aggressively into midfield, and he had a couple of nice moments doing that. I think it's a specific instruction from Honus. He wasn't perfect in that situation, though. He wasn't always able to stop the ball in midfield once he stepped. But the biggest thing that I thought Chris Richards did exceptionally well in this game was recovery speed. Recovery speed, recovery speed. I sent these couple of clips to you, Taylor. There's multiple moments in the first 15 minutes of this game where Richards just gets on his bike and he is sweeping things up in the back. He's cleaning up. He's tracking runners. He shifts over. Then after tracking a runner, this one's in the 15th minute. He shifts over after tracking a runner to then recover back to the middle of the field and get involved and slow the play down there. He is incredibly quick. And to me, watching this game against Mainz for Hoffenheim just made me long for a Chris Richards-Miles Robinson center back pairing. Can you imagine how hard those two players would be to beat in a counterattacking situation for the opposition or in a defensive recovery moment for the U.S. men's national team? I think that pairing could be 
borderline elite in that particular phase of play. And, and now I can't stop thinking about it, Taylor. <laughs> I mean, that's fair. And I think it's especially fair given some of the center back performances we saw for the U.S. in this last window, especially John Brooks, who for the longest time has just been, yep, he's in there. There's no there's no use discussing it. It's John Brooks. It's Tyler Adams. It's Weston McKinney. We know how this is going. He looked so sort of just out of it in those last couple games and just not aware or alert to threats the way we need that veteran leading center back to be. And and I think that is why Chris Richards stood out in such a positive way in this game to me is because he was more alert, but then he was also able to make up that ground to still make plays even if he had slipped for a moment or even if he was alert, but one of his teammates wasn't. And that's one of those clips you sent, Joe. It's he does everything right and then realizes, oh, my my uh, my partner uh, votes uh, man has, is now wide open and I'm going to sprint 20 yards to deal with him. And and that level of like uh, range of ability to cover ground, but then also alertness to threats and awareness of what was going on in developing plays. It stood out to me that much more because of the uh, last window for the U.S. And. And to go back to John Brooks for just a second, because I knew he was going to come up in this conversation. John mm. Brooks still has and will have for the next few years, I imagine, has a ton of value to the U.S. Men's National Team. But his value has never been in a recovery situation or in a 1v1 defensive situation like it is with Chris Richards and Miles Robinson. John Brooks's value is when the ball is at his feet. And we didn't see enough of those quality line-breaking passes from him in the September window. But I'm inclined to say that's more on the the action that's happening in front of him, where he wasn't able to find players between the lines, especially in that Canada game, because there weren't players between the lines. And there were moments for him to split the seam and, and then find Christian Pulisic cutting inside or whoever. And those are on him. But generally speaking, it was a lot of the breakdowns in front of him, in my view, that led to Brooks not having the best offensive performance. But defensively, John Brooks is is rarely a plus for the U.S. men's national team. Chris Richards and Miles Robinson can be that plus pairing for the U.S. defensively. If there's a game where you realize we're going to need that recovery speed, we're going to need that range, Richards and Robinson could be a lockdown pairing in the back. And you add to that Richards' passing ability. He's developing that left foot. He had a nice chipped left-footed ball uh, right before halftime in this game. It's in the 44th minute to find a player higher up the field. He has that quality with his left. He's not Boateng. He's not Sergio Ramos or Rafael Varane out there at this point. But he has quality on the ball. He can hit a really quick, clean, right-footed pass as well. That's his dominant foot. He is not a fully complete center back yet, but the tools are there, Taylor. And I cannot wait to see Chris Richards for the U.S. Men's National Team for a longer period of time. Nor can I. Nor can I wait to continue to discuss uh, center backs for the U.S. National Team. I'm going to be talking about one in a minute. But, Joe, let's take a break. Let's come back to talk a little more about John Brooks and the current depth before we move on to some more players and maybe a little bit more Chris Richards in just a moment. This episode is supported by Season 3 of FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League 2 after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the city's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher division. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenges and rise again into League 1? FX is Welcome to Wrexham. Catch all new episodes Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. 
You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. All right, Joe, we are back. We were talking about Chris Richards, how excited you are uh, for everything he brings to the table, to the U.S. national team table, that is. And I, I assume also the Hoffenheim table, so <laughs> less vested interest there for you. If we're looking at the depth chart, uh, having said what I just said about John Brooks, is it still for you if we're starting in a back four in a World Cup qualifier and everybody's fit? Is it John Brooks on the left and Miles Robinson on the right? Is that where we are right now? Yes, that's where I am. But Mm -hmm. Chris Richards is not far off from either of those players in my view. I think it is close. And that's what you want, right? We can talk about, you know, who are the top two. But there's going to be situations where John Brooks is missing a game. He's already got a yellow card. Another one's going to come. There's going to be moments where Miles Robinson can't play 270 minutes for each window, right? That's not realistic. And so I think more important than the who's 1A and who's 1B for right and left is is like who is close to the starting stratosphere. And Chris Richards is right in that conversation. I don't see a huge drop off between those three names, even though they do things very differently between the three of them. And that's exactly where you want to be. Depth is so important for the U.S. And we saw that earlier in this month in the World Cup qualifiers with players dropping left and right. So having another center back like Richards, who I think can bring you that starting quality whenever you need him to, that's huge for me, Taylor. And broadly speaking, Joe, is there a type of opponent for the United States where you would rather see John Brooks start in defense versus a type of opponent where it makes more sense to start Chris Richards? Um, I think generally speaking, I like the idea of Brooks starting against a Canada-like defense. And in that game, they defended, right? They they sat really deep and they played that 5-4-1 block, Canada did. And they won't always do that. That's why I said Canada-like defense. Whoever is sitting back a little bit deeper, maybe it's more home games than road games. Maybe it's Honduras in the United States. Maybe that's a game where you want John Brooks there to split lines and break lines with his left foot. That does present challenges, obviously. There's not a perfect game for any of these players because then you have to recover defensively after you lose the ball. You have to win those close defensive matchups. And that's not always John Brooks's strength. But I like the idea of playing John Brooks against a bunker defense and then playing Richards and Robinson together against a Mexico, which is a big ask. I want to be clear. That is a massive ask for these two Robinson's, what, 24, so he's not a young player, but he's still relatively inexperienced at the pro level, and same with Chris Richards. That's a hard job, but in terms of the tactical situations presented by that kind of opponent, that's the game where you're going to be defending more, you're going to be recovering. Those are situations where I think Richards and Robinson can do some real damage. One last thing I wanted to ask about for you when it comes to the ideal center back pairings. Uh, I think sometimes the criticism of Burhalter uh, is that it's it's too much reliant on the system and it's too sort of measured. It's too controlled and that doesn't always lend to a ton of attacking chances. If he threw caution to the wind and just went with uh, a, a starting 11 that could get you opportunities that could be very fun of the attack, but has the the speed to get back when caught in transition. So let's say we had something like Chris Richards and Miles Robinson with Dest on one side and Anthony Robinson on the other. So we've got a ton of pace to be able to get back and ideally deal with counterattacks. Do you, would you like that to just see a defense that can have people stepping into midfield and can have people making overlapping runs out of nowhere? Like, would you like to see them free it up for a game or two? 
Sure, I think that lineup could do some some good work in the back. I think Richards and Robinson would complement each other well. I mentioned earlier Richards stepping really far into mm-hmm. midfield to try and win the ball. I think that's something he can be good at, even if he's not perfect at it just yet. I think Robinson has shown some glimpses of offensive ability, is still really inconsistent in that phase. But both of them can cover for Dest when he marauds up that right, or, or, or Robinson when he goes up that left side, Anthony Robinson. I think that back four could work. And to be honest, Taylor, I'd be I'd be pretty surprised if we don't see that at some All point right. over the next couple months. I like it. All right. Well, I would be very surprised if we saw uh, the next player we're going to be discussing in that list starting for the national team. But I would be less surprised having watched this past weekend's game than I would have been before it because Cameron Carter-Vickers had a very good ga- uh, game for Celtic in his debut, started in their 3-0 win over Ross County, who admittedly are second bottom in the table. I think they have two points on the season and are one of the worst teams in the league, uh, according to our friend and yours, Graham Ruthven. But that said, this was... I would say by some distance, the best performance I've ever seen from Cameron Carter-Vickers. Uh, and that's a player that you and I have talked about many times in his many different clubs. It goes back to the scouting network and when he was even like a young uh, uh, reserve youth player with Tottenham. What he did for Celtic this weekend showed aspects of the game that we've come to expect from him. He's going to battle in the air. He's going to be good in 1v1s. He's going to be scrappy. But I have not seen him as confident on the ball or as competent on the ball as I saw in this game. And he's completing passes. He is striding forward with the ball and splitting lines and even scoring a goal, albeit with a pretty severe deflection. But it's still the opener against a Ross County team that sat very deep. He gets the opener and then they get two more goals after that, after Ross County are forced to open up some more. So... Even instrumental in the sort of uh, fight to get that first goal to get the win, but then also to keep the clean sheet. I, I am far more up on Cameron Carter-Vickers than I've ever been, Joe Lowry. I don't know how to feel about it. <laughs> it. It feels a little strange, right? It does. Because CCV has not, he hasn't panned out, right, in a lot of respects based off of yeah. what we thought he might be able to do. And he is somewhat emblematic of kind of are as a nation's expectations and over expectations for a lot of these young players and just thinking that every one of them is going to turn into gold. And that's not been the case. Obviously, that's just not how it works. It is fun, though, to see Cameron Carter-Rickers escape Tottenham for the 87th time and go on loan <laughs> somewhere and actually actually make a move and play and play well. This was a fun game from Cameron Carter-Rickers, who is an incredibly fun player to watch. We already joked a little bit about his build earlier on in the show that alone weirdly makes him fun to watch because you don't see a lot of players that are built like him going out and then doing some of the things he did that you just mentioned, Taylor, in this game for Celtic with some of those passes, striding forward to take a shot from really, really far out. It was fun. It was fun to watch him. And I don't think this performance puts him really all that much higher in the U.S. men's national team depth chart. That feels reactive to me. And I'm certainly not saying that you're saying that, Taylor. But it it was fun to sit back and enjoy a Cameron Cutter-Vickers performance in a way that maybe we haven't been able to enjoy over the last few years. Yeah. And and to add some context to it for folks who are new to the Cameron Carter-Vickers experience, uh, he is an English-American born in England. Uh, I think his father is an American who played basketball over there, uh, was with Tottenham, I think was the captain of their U21 team when he was 17 years old. But since then, it was alone to Sheffield, alone to Ipswich, alone to Swansea, alone to Stoke, alone to Luton, alone to Bournemouth, and now another loan to Celtic. But this one puts him in a position where he is, to my mind, actually playing. And so many times when we've talked about Cameron Carter-Vickers, it is in teams that are long ball merchants where he is battling for 50-50s in the air. It's a lot of head tennis, similar to Barnsley with Daryl DK last season. And it's not 
showcasing the skills that Greg Berhalter would want to see. And so we've gotten that question before about why not Cameron Carter-Vickers when he was starting for Bournemouth or starting for Luton or starting for Stoke. And the answer was always because he can't really pass a ball, or at least that's not a thing that he's being asked to do. He can win stuff in the air, but he's not going to control a ball or bring it down or dribble forward or play balls through the lines. So that's why I think he hasn't been in that conversation. You're correct, Joe, that it would be way too far to jump to like, well, should he be? But I will say that watching this game, and if he continues to perform in this way for Celtic, it is aspects of his game that I don't feel like I've seen before, certainly haven't seen be this productive. And if he can continue to move the ball and be instrumental in facilitating attacks, he does kind of come into the equation at some point if he keeps it going. But in this game, he had uh, 102 completed passes, 102 for a center back. Not always that surprising if it's just moving from one side to the other. But he does also still have some line-splitting balls, some direct balls over the top that all find their intended target. Again, that's been a knock on him in the past is that he can spot the runner, but sometimes he hits it into their path, sometimes he hit, hits it 15 yards over their head, and sometimes he hits it 10 yards behind them. In this game, I didn't see any of that. Instead, I saw him playing very well for a ball-dominant team that was not getting a ton of pressure. So when they come up against a high-pressing team, we'll see how he does there. When they don't have as much possession, we'll see how he does there, if and when that ever happens in the SPL. But that aside, three, three for four aerial duels, nine recoveries, 88% pass completion rate, I think the numbers were were pretty solid. So too was the goal, but mostly it was the passing between the lines. It was 30 and 40-yard passes forward or even just 15-yard passes that split two defenders and found somebody in space or found somebody out wide. I thought he just looked calm on the ball uh, in a way that Celtic needed and in a way that maybe the U.S. will need at some point down the road. And what excites me more or what interests me more, maybe mm-hmm. I should say that, about CCV right now is is not necessarily this game. But it's the fact that Celtic have Europa League coming up. Starting mm-hmm. later this week, they play Real Batiste on Thursday. And then they play, uh, shoot, I just lost it. They play Bayer Leverkusen uh, on the 30th of September. So they have some higher level opponents coming up. And I think those could be fascinating games to see CCV play in. Games that are at a higher level in a lot of respects than games he's played over the last few years, largely speaking. That's going to be fun. And that's going to give us a better data point than a game against Ross County or even a game against most other SPL teams. That has me intrigued. And performances in those games, I think could do a decent amount to raise his stock in the center back pool. So that's, that's one thing I'm really interested to see. Agreed. And my final note on him is just that if these performances continue, and again, we're talking about one performance here, so I don't want to get get too far ahead of myself, but so often with people who've just been on loan, bet on loan, bet on loan, that just becomes who they are, and eventually their parent club, when the contract expires, just lets them move on, and they end up in a second division or third division team, or maybe he heads uh, heads to MLS or something like that. And, and and it requires a sort of restart. Uh, and I'm not even trying to be critical. I'm just trying to say that when you sort of lose that parent contract and then you've got to figure things out, you're starting from square one. And if this goes well, if he maybe if this loan were made permanent or extended or whatever it might be, that is a much stronger position to be the starting center back for Celtic if that move is made permanent. Uh, or even if it's not, I think it does turn some heads. It does make some teams maybe take a longer look at him than they would otherwise be taking. So, again, on a weekend where we didn't have a ton of positivity about Americans abroad, uh, CCV starting, winning, playing well for Celtic, definitely a positive. Boom. I'm with you, Taylor. There we go. All right, Joe, where are we heading next? Gianluca Busio time. Oh, Let's boy. head to Italy. Busio started and played the whole game for Venezia in their 2-1 win over Empoli on Saturday. 
Taylor, I don't know if you remember, but the last time we talked about Jean-Luc Abuzio yeah. was not so good, right? He played yeah. as a six People in their bad. loss uh, that, that took place just before the international break. And uh, yeah, that, that didn't go well. He had turnovers. He struggled to keep up with the pace of the game. In this particular match, though, against Empoli on Saturday, he started as a number eight, a left-sided number eight in a 4-3-3. So he's one of two free eights for Venezia. And I don't really see him as an eight in a 4-3-3 long term. He did that a lot with Sporting Kansas City. And I think he, he lacks a little bit of the top-tier creativity that, you, that you'd like to see from someone in that spot. But that said, I came into that, I came into this game, watching this game with that expectation and that bias in mind. Busio was honestly pretty good in this game with the ball. He struggled in that first start he had for Venezia with the ball. We talked about that. But in this game, he had the MLS assist, the pass before the assist on uh, Venezia's first goal. It was a nice little slipped ball into the box. He was in zone 14 and found the right pass to play forward that then allowed a teammate to cross the ball in and lead to the goal. He had a few other passes like that. He rotated out wide to the left side a few times, looked comfortable doing that. Wasn't perfect, wasn't flawless on the ball, had a sloppy touch in the first half that broke a sequence that would have allowed Venezia to go forward. But I was generally impressed with his offensive contributions, which is a good step. I know it's been only a couple of games now, but we want to see these building blocks and players getting more comfortable. And to my eyes, at least, even with that position change, it looked like Busio was a bit more comfortable in this game than in that last loss, which was against Udinese before mm-hmm. uh, we left for the international break. Joe, if you were if you were like spotlighting one thing that you felt like was better overall from this performance from the last, what would that be? What was the thing that kind of stood out to you? It's like, oh, okay, that's better. That's a good thing. I hadn't seen that before. Okay, John Luca. Just fewer turnovers. And and mm-hmm. there's a big caveat here because of the position switch. The True. six in a four through three, which is the shape that Venezia used in both of the games that I'm referencing here, the the position change makes it a little hard to directly compare games, and that's I think why I'm ending up being a little bit vague, is because when you're the six in a four three three a lot of times you're you're the switcher. You're you're the player that everything comes through. You're relied on to move play from one side to the other. You are the pivot in the back, and that is your job and your job only in a lot of cases. That's less true as an eight. And so Buzio struggled as a six in that first start he had, but he looked a lot better in this game with a little bit less offensive responsibility. So there's that big caveat there, but in general, Buzio made and, and held onto the ball a little bit better. He didn't turn it over as much a couple of moments with notwithstanding. He looked he looked sharper on the ball and was able to actually contribute to attacks in ways that he maybe wasn't in that first start. So there was a lot of good things related to his work on the ball. Defensively, also some positives as well. Taylor, I sent you a nice moment in the 45th minute, right before halftime. Venezia lose the ball in an Empoli start a counterattack. And Busio, one of the big knocks on him in the past has been his his lack of defensive work rate and his inability or, or you know unwillingness to step back, track, recover the ball, and then restart attacks. You didn't see that at all in this clip that I sent you. Busio slides over to force the ball towards the sideline. He's using that sideline as an extra defender basketball style. And he goes and he nearly gets bodied off the ball. And the opposing player shoves yeah. him a little bit. And Busio stands in there. It's not it's not perfect, but he stands in there and then tackles the ball away and out for a throw-in. It's a good moment. That's something we haven't seen, or at least I haven't seen, a lot of from Busio in the past. He was aggressive in this game defensively, sometimes in bad moments. He gave up a bunch of fouls, was a little bit too aggressive stepping to the ball, and, and that happened a number of times in the first half alone. But still, I'll take hyper-aggressive Busio as he learns to manage that aggression. I'll take that over overly passive Busio, and I think we saw the right Busio in this game defensively. You will get no arguments from me because I also noticed that sort of hip check that does body him a little bit. 
The difference to me was that he doesn't get like squarely knocked off the ball. It doesn't then force him into sort of dropping off and and seating space, but making sure he doesn't get beaten in a physical contest. I, I think what that says to me, I agree with your overall takeaway, Joe, is that he he is basically feistier. He's getting in people's faces more often and he's getting more physical. And sometimes that means he's too aggressive. Sometimes it means he fouls. Sometimes it means he'll maybe get beaten once or twice. But I think the larger point to me, at least, is that he is being told, you got to get in there, you got to get involved. And he is doing that. And to me, that feels like a manager's instruction of you are smaller in frame, you are going to be easier to knock off the ball, but that doesn't mean you can back down. That doesn't mean you can stand off and let the, your opponent dictate the style of play or the way they're going to play. You got to get in their face. You got to hassle them. You got to get into 50 50 challenges when you can, when it's required. And I think to see him, the response to this one just being so consistently up for it and the kind of energizer bunny style of even when he does get that little bit of a, a bump or even if he is sort of like uh, overstepping once or twice, it's still the next play. He's right back up for it. He's right back in their face. That to me is an adjustment and that he is continuing to play with that adjustment means that he's doing what his manager is asking him to do and he is learning and evolving his game. And that's all you can ask for for a player who's so young playing for a club who themselves are young when it comes to Serie A. Yeah, I completely agree with that, Taylor. I think he is responding to instruction from what we can see on the field. This is a big win for Venezia. It's their first win of the season in Serie A. They haven't played many games. This is their third league game. But still, it's a big moment for them and to see Busio stepping up his game in certain areas. An area that I don't know if you remember, but Taylor, after we talked about Busio the last time, I was more concerned about his defensive work than the turnovers. And the turnovers were more costly to Venezia in that game. But based off of what we'd seen from Busio and MLS, I think defensively that was my, my bigger area of concern and something that I wanted to see him grow in first and foremost. And the fact that we're seeing that early days, yes, again, big early season caveat here. But that's a promising sign, and I want to keep seeing that sign over the next few games. Agreed. And it's an Empoli side that, lest we forget, uh, did give Juve a 1-0 loss. So they, they've gotten a win of their own, but that does mean that they are are, are pretty uh, stern opposition themselves. So Venezia, so for, for Venezia to get that win, for Busio to look good as they did, makes me happy, Joe. Another reason for optimism. Oh, yeah. That's that's about the end of my thoughts on Busio Taylor. Where right. do you want to take us next, or are we going into ye old ad break? I think we're going to take one more ad break, and then <laughs> okay. we will be back to talk about Weston McKinney, maybe a few more names, and then we will call it a day. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Today's episode is brought to you by our old friends, Mac Weldon. Wouldn't it be nice if we could have things both ways, like a zero-calorie cheeseburger, internet ads in March that weren't just reminders to do your taxes, a dog that never needs walking after midnight when it's cold, a Manchester United that is consistently good instead of their current scattershot approach? Well, we tend to think of clothing as an either-or situation as well. People think looking sharp means starchy Oxfords and stiff chinos rather than effortless comfort. But it's possible to have it both ways. Mack Weldon makes timeless apparel with modern performance fabrics for guys who want to look and feel sharp without sacrificing comfort. 
From their light-as-air underwear to innovative anti-odor tees and versatile yet comfortable pants, Mack Weldon has a full range of clothes that never go out of style. I got a few things recently, including a long-sleeve polo, which I love, uh, maybe the most comfortable t-shirt, which I also love, and my new favorite sweatpants, the Ace sweatpant. It's exactly what I described above, comfort and versatile, but still stylish. It's the type of sweatpant I can wear to pick up my kids from daycare and not think... I'm now wearing sweatpants in public. The other parents will judge me. Now I just think, judge away, nerds, because you will never be this comfortable unless you're also wearing a pair, in which case, high five. Mack Weldon is not flashy. It's just classic, always in style, and made from the world's most comfortable performance materials. They're designed to fit both your style and the demands of modern life. So get timeless looks with modern comfort from Mack Weldon. Go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off your first order with promo code TSS. That's M-A-C-K-W-E-L-D-O-N.com, promo code TSS to get 20% off your first order. Thank you to Mack Weldon for sponsoring today's episode. All right, Joe Lowry, we are going to stay in Italy. We're not going anywhere else. We're staying in Italy to talk about Weston McKinney, a surprise starter for Juve in a maybe not surprising 2-1 loss to Napoli this weekend, started on the right side of a midfield three. And it does seem like he would not have started uh, maybe just because he wouldn't have started, but also because of what happened on uh, during the international break and being sent home early. But Juve without a ton of performers. We talked a little bit about this yesterday in the weekend review. Uh, basically, all their South Americans missing. Uh, Dybala, Cuadrado, Danilo, Alexandro, Rodrigo Bentancourt, uh, Federico Chiesa left at home with an injury. Artur still recovering from an injury. He's not back until October. So not a ton of options, especially in midfield. Weston McKinney starts and... I was really excited for this one because he starts, as I said, on that right side of midfield with Locatelli Central, Rabio on the left. But McKenney definitely had the most license to get forward, to get involved in the attack, and I think had the fewest defensive responsibilities. So that's exciting, being given more license, being given more sort of instruction and and freedom to do as he wants. I think the downside to that would be that I don't think he did much with that freedom. He has 14 total passes in 72, 72 minutes of play. That's a 70% completion rate by contrast. Locatelli playing in the middle, 36 completed passes. Adrian Rabio on the left side completed 33. So again, you can make the argument that that's McKinney being more advanced, having fewer numbers around him, having to hold the ball up and try to create something from nothing in the attack. I would go somewhere in between to say that, yes, he is being asked to do more, and so there are moments when he is trying a ball down the line because there's nothing else on, or he's getting the ball and he doesn't have anybody around him and he has to wait and wait and wait, and he ends up getting dispossessed. But there are also times when he's just not quick enough. He's not decisive enough, and he tries to carry a ball forward and takes a heavy touch and loses it. So then the next time he cuts it back and loses it, then there's another time when he does complete a pass, and that's good. But it was just this very... His very varied performance from McKinney in a game that I felt like he really needed to show why he fits, why he belongs, and to show that that was just a, a kind of one-off lapse in judgment, but that he, other than that, is very focused on what he's being asked to do, very focused on his career. And so this game, I think, when viewed through that lens, felt even more negative as a result because it was him with this opportunity to shine and instead... Not that he was bad, just that he didn't really stand out in a meaningful way. I'm concerned about Weston McKinney, Taylor. Yep. And yep. and a lot of that is influenced by the fact that he was sent home from the U.S. Men's National Team camp. True. But I think that's fair. I think that's a fair lens to view Weston McKinney through right now while we're still kind of waiting to learn a little bit more about what happened or to see how he's going to respond. 
And I'm concerned about that. And I'm also concerned about his time at Juve. You know, the fact that Juve bring in Locatelli from Sassuolo, who was excellent at the Euros with Italy and that team that won the Euros and who has been very strong in Serie A recently as well. That that doesn't necessarily bode well for Weston McKinney, having another body, yet another body to compete with in midfield after he's already not played a ton to start the season. He's only played in two of their three games and he hasn't played a full game or he didn't play a full game in the last match for Juve. And in that game, we talked about Weston McKinney the last time we did this show, and he also wasn't very involved. He was getting forward defensively. He had one or two nice moments of combination play, but he, he doesn't do he doesn't find the ball a lot for you he doesn't get involved in the game and that's been a trend dating back to his time with them last season so I have concerns off the field at Weston McKinney right now I have concerns with is you the right place for him to develop how much is he going to play these are all concerns I think that we dealt with in some way last season too and it kind of felt like oh he still played a actually a decent amount and Pirlo seemed to like him and it looks like everything's going to be fine and I think we might have to restart some of those questions and evaluate how Weston McKinney is doing in a more critical way as this season continues. Which might seem unfair when we're talking about an American midfielder who's starting games for Juve. And and perhaps it is. The way I would see it uh, is more that he has reached a certain level, that he has reached the level where we know he is a good soccer player. We know he can function in the midfields of uh, Germany and Italy at, at various levels, and I think has shown that he is a, a competent midfielder at those levels, both internationally and at club level. But now we want to see him move to that next level. We want to see him raise his game and add new aspects and and become a more accomplished footballer in certain areas or ideally in all areas. And I, I would say similar to what we saw from the U.S. national team, this Juventus team doesn't seem like they know whose team it is. And maybe it's Chiellini and Bonucci because they're the veterans. Maybe it will end up being Locatelli, but he is new. Maybe it will be Morata, but that feels less likely to me. I don't think this team knows who that leader is going to be, who the person is that's going to kind of make them kick it up a notch when they need to, is going to pull some games back. And that's the exact same thing that I kept saying about the U.S. national team this last time, that there wasn't one player who it felt like was leading by example, but also making his teammates better. Christian Pulisic was taking people on and trying to make something happen, but I wouldn't say that that was that next level, like making people do things and taking the game by the scruff of the neck, as the cliche would would go with, but it's an accurate cliche. And this was a game that needed Weston McKinney to be this assertive, almost authoritative player who was creating, uh, who was drawing fouls, who was hassling, who was just sort of taking that game on and making it his own. And instead, he felt very much like a passenger for most of the game, such that even the chances Juventus do get, he's involved. There's two different balls from sort of narrow wide uh, where he's basically gotten the ball driven into the box and then he's gone for a cross for one. There's more of like a chipped pass towards the middle of the box for another. And both of those are fine. They're they're both like okay. I can't remember if I sent you either one of them, Joe. But the first one, it's a low cross that's basically just caught by the goalkeeper and held. The second one is just chipped and cleared. But both of those, again, nothing specifically wrong, but also not very threatening, very easily dealt with both times. And if he is going to be that more attacking player, the one who can provide that spark, 
a a sort of tame low cross that's easily held by the goalkeeper is not the spark I think you they are looking for. It's too passive, and you did send me at least one of those clips, Taylor. It's okay. in the, the end of the 22nd minute or the very start of the 23rd yeah, yeah, yeah. minute. Mm-hmm. And and McKinney just takes too long to get to the ball in order to hit an early cross, which I think would have been the best move to Morata. And so then he sort of slowly catches up to the ball and, and does play this tame, easily held ball on the floor that the goalkeeper can just grab and, and hold it easily, as I'm saying. So it's not... It's not good enough in those moments from Weston McKinney, I would argue. And, and I agree, Taylor. He's a passenger in a lot of these moments for Juve. And that's something that I'm worried about. I'm not expecting McKinney to be that consistent player who's going to grab the game by the scruff of the neck every single match for Juve. I don't think that's a fair expectation for him. But I, I want to see him get involved more. I want to see him be more of an impact player. And we haven't seen that yet for Juve. We didn't see that in the last window for the U.S. men's national team very clearly. I'm not saying we're never going to see that. But at some point, he needs to show it going forward this season. And that might be in October with the U.S. men's national team. That might be in Champions League for Juve. That might be in the league for Juve. But it, it's time for Weston McKinney to grow into this role with Juve that he hasn't so far this season. Yeah, because I think when we look at the national team level with that in mind, like heading into this last camp, there were maybe five, six spots that I would say were pretty much nailed down. I would say John Brooks is one of the center backs was one of them. Tyler Adams ahead of them as the number six would be one of them. I think Weston McKinney is one of the number eights was in there. And then if they're fit, Gio Reyna and, uh, and Christian Pulisic are going to be starting. So there's five right there. And it's strange to me that coming out of that camp, like John Brooks is still probably the starter, but I have way bigger question marks than I expected to have, especially about his ability to just track a run and track a run twice. Uh, But then Weston McKinney also for the obvious off-the-ball reasons, but then just not like raising that game. And that's where I I come back to and agree with you, Joe, that I think he's in a very critical point of his career. I think he's had a ton of success at a very young age and has, like even as his teams, like Schalke, has the kind of massive downturn. He moves to Juve and things go well. Obviously, they don't win the title, but it's still playing for a Juventus team that have tons of talent. They have Allegri back. We would expect them to, at the very least, challenge for the title, if not win it outright. It It is, I think, the, the first time I can think of that really he's big questions are being asked and and he might well end end up not playing many games and could be moved in January, could be moved next summer, but could also become this linchpin of a Juve team that win the title or challenge for the title and win the title next year. And he's starting every game. That is a possibility, too. And I think this game, I had hoped to see that immediate spark. But that is a really hard thing to do, to come back from the break and to come back from the break he had more specifically, to then show up on the field, playing a relatively new position and becoming the player, the man for this team. That's asking too much for sure. But it paints a picture of a player who I think needs to add some new things to his game, needs to prove that he can raise his performance to the next level and be that player that Berhalter needs him to be, that Allegri that Allegri needs him to be, that we, U.S. soccer fans, would like him to be. I'm running out of breath, such as my rant about <laughs> Weston McKinney, but I just want to drive home the point that this next month or two, I think, is is critically important to his development as a player, but also his development in terms of his career and where he goes next. And I'm excited to see what happens, right? Yep. I'm excited to see how he evolves, or if he evolves with Juve, where does he fit into that team under Allegri? Does he get called into the U.S. men's national team in October? There are so many 
There's so many storylines around Weston McKinney and the U.S. right now that we don't usually get. And in a way, it it's kind of fun, weirdly. And I'm not I'm not saying that what he did in the U.S. Men's National League camp was right or any of that. But it's interesting and intriguing to see where this story is going to go because a lot of times in U.S. soccer, it feels like we get a lot of stories surrounding the Federation, which we led the show with. But we don't always have a lot of wildly crazy stories about mm-hmm. high-profile players. And the fact that we have that with Weston McKinney right now, and he does seem to be at a bit of a crossroads it's kind of it's kind of fun in a weird way, Taylor, and I'm interested to see where yeah. it goes. For as frustrated as they were to constantly field questions about McKinney and COVID protocol and what happened, uh, I think with the ticket prices story, maybe they're happy to go back to the <laughs> McKinney scandal. We can just go back and talk about that some more. It's less of what U.S. soccer did wrong. Who knows? Uh, Joe, anyone else that we should talk about? I did watch some footage of uh, Nico Giochini playing for Montpellier. That move made official. Uh, he did Giochini things. I'll just say that. Like, he looked fine, but not so impressive. He made some good runs off the ball. He uh, puts a header just off frame. And then I think as the game went on, uh, just not quite that next-level sharpness you need when you are making the jump that he has made. He has, like, one header that he's trying to pass to a teammate that he passes directly to an opponent that leads to a counterattack and I think ends in a corner. So an up-and-down game for him, but still he's there getting minutes, so that's a positive. But not enough for me to, I think, race him into the conversation of, yeah, he definitely needs to be called in for the next camp right now. He is very much a fringe on the outside sort of player for me. Joe, any other national team players you wanted to mention or spotlight before we call this one a day? The only thing I wanted to quickly hit on is Ricardo Pepe scored Dallas's equalizing goal in their game against the San Jose Earthquakes over the weekend. So he is continuing to do some pretty impressive things in Major League Soccer. He will, barring some crazy turn, he will be involved with the U.S. in October and could be in line for more minutes. And I think either you or I thought he would have uh, for the U.S. men's national team soon. So that's that's something, obviously, that we want to keep monitoring as well. All right. All right. Well, well done, Ricardo Pepe. Well done, Joe, for ending us on a positive note. Uh, Joe and I will be back this week to do Lister Questions with Graham and Ryan. We're also going to be doing some Champions League review later in the week. It's a busy one, Joe Lowry. Anything else to add? I don't think so. I got to go get some some notes ready on Lister Questions and get ready to watch some Champions League games. The soccer never stops. It never does, my friend. But Joe Lowry does, at least for now. Joe Lowry, thank you <laughs> once again, my friend. You got it, Taylor. Listeners, thank you all, my friends, uh, for taking the time to listen. We will talk to you all again very, very soon. 